1: I always try to find objects and documents that have something about them that are unusual, that will kind of say to people, look at me. You know, if you look at a document with a lot of text, it's, it may not become visually compelling. But if there's a big red line through the middle of it, that looks like something you might want to learn more about. Right.
2: Hello, and welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Karen Hahn. And I'm your other host, June
3: Thomas. June, who is our working subject this week? So this week I spoke with Deborah Schmidt-Bach, who is a curator at the New York Historical Society. And I reached out to her when I saw that the museum had mounted an exhibition culled from Robert Caro's archive. It struck me as interesting that a writer's working papers would be something that people would be interested in paying to look at. Though I have to admit that I was definitely making plans to visit the minute, the very second I heard about it.
2: That sounds so cool, but also like terrifying as someone who I, w- I feel like I would <laughs> never want anyone to look at my notes. I feel like those are, I will burn them before I let someone yes. <laughs> look at them. Um, same, for- hard same. <laughs> But for any listeners who might not be familiar with his work, um, I was wondering if you could explain who Robert Caro is and what, to you, makes him such an icon.
3: Oh, So he's a biographer. He wrote The Power Broker, a very, very, very big, completely absorbing biography of Robert Moses, the man who reshaped New York City in his own very flawed image. And he's been working on a multi-volume biography of Lyndon Johnson for more than four decades now. Four volumes have been published. And there's another one in the works. He's still writing well into his 80s. And he has a very particular way of working, um, which I think not only is that he's a very good and a very beloved writer, but there is something, it's like it is known that he has this peculiar process. Mm -hmm. So it starts with very intense research and then he writes a version by hand and then he types a version on a typewriter and then he revises and revises and revises and pretty much never stops revising. (laughs) It's incredibly painstaking and incredibly slow. But I have to say in this particular Case, I think mm-hmm. it might be worth it. Um, <laughs> I've read three of his biographies, as well as his book "Working," great title, which <laughs> uh, he in which he tells some stories about his process, and they're all really, really fantastic. And he's certainly been hugely influential. The title of this New York Historical Society exhibition is "Turn Every Page." which is his Mm -hmm. famous admonition to other nonfiction writers. I -hmm. mean, great advice, but it sure makes it hard to meet your deadlines. (laughs) A good exhibit for writers, maybe a more stressful exhibit for editors, I'm gathering. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Um,
2: And so what do Slate Plus
3: listeners have to look forward to from your conversation with Deborah Schmidt-Bach? So in the plus segment, members will hear Deborah talk about how she overcomes curator's block, which is very (laughs) similar to writer's block, and also what she learned from Robert Caro while working on this exhibition. That sounds amazing. And I'm
2: always so kind of in awe of the job that curators do. Um, So listeners, if you are not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash working plus and you will get to listen to the segment that June just described. Slate Plus is $1 for your first month and members get zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus content on our show and other shows like Slow Burn and Culture Gap Fest. And you can get full access to the articles on slate.com. So you won't run into that pesky paywall. Last but not least, you'll be supporting the work that we do here on working. Again, it's $1 for your first month, and you can sign up today at slate.com slash working plus. Now let's hear June's interview with curator Deborah Schmidt-Bach.
3: So who are you and what do you do?
0: My name is Deborah Schmidt-Bach
1: and I am the Curator of Decorative Arts here at the New York Historical Society.
3: I have so many questions about that. First of all, what are decorative arts?
1: Yeah, that's quite a question at this point in time. I think the term decorative arts and my title, to be honest, are dated and a bit of a misnomer. Uh, Typically, decorative arts were defined as artistically made objects that were not paintings, sculpture, or drawings. So generally it was three-dimensional materials, uh, often fine furniture, silver, ceramics, glass, different kinds of metals. But in the last 20 years, The idea of decorative arts has really expanded to include a range of objects, and those objects can include things like folk art, but also things like tools or um, different kinds of utilitarian objects, household objects, business and advertising objects. Uh, Anything three-dimensional you really can think about as um, decorative arts, the field has really developed and matured over the last, It's it's been an evolution of f- over the last 35
3: years. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, what's your background? How did you get interested in decorative arts?
1: I began my career after college in the fashion business. And um, I tell people that I've now worked in two industries where knowing how to pack is an asset. <laughs> so i began by working in fashion in various capacities for 10 years i worked for a magazine for a period of time i worked for public relation companies and um, at, at some point i decided that i wanted to go back to school and learn more about american history so i pursued a degree in american studies at columbia university and while i was at columbia i took a course and in that class we actually were assigned to use different objects from the New York Historical Society museum and library collection for our class projects mm. and i just love this class the professors introduced the field of material culture studies very in a very uh, passionate way and they made it very accessible And um, I just fell in love with it. And after that class, started to work first as a volunteer and then as an intern in various small New York City museums. And I just kept developing my love of studying objects.
3: Wow. And I guess the final part of that, um, the New York Historical Society. Tell us about that organization.
1: The New York Historical Society is um, New York City's oldest museum. It was established in 1804, and it was established as a repository for information and objects uh, related to the history of the United States, but also the history of New York and the history of the United States through the lens of New York. And this collection It was the basis for our library, because the New York Historical Society is made up of a world-class library with millions of uh, books and documents, as well as a world-class museum collection. But um, one of the very unique things about this collection uh, is that objects were coming into this collection simultaneous to documents.
3: (laughs) Interesting. So the reason I wanted to have you on working was that I saw that the New York Historical Society was mounting an exhibition called Turn Every Page Inside the Robert A. Caro Archive. And I wasn't interested in that only because Robert Caro wrote a book called Working about his creative process, and that's the name of our show. Um, But like many writers, I love Robert Caro. Um, But it also struck me as a really unusual Uh, kind of basis for an exhibition. Um, Maybe I don't spend enough time in historical societies or historical-based museums, but how did this exhibition come about?
1: So the exhibition is really um, provided a way for us to introduce the archive to the public. Um, But it's a very, very dense and wonderful archive. Um, Mr. Caro spends... Many, many years researching every (laughs) book, but he interviews hundreds and hundreds of people for each book and um, does really meticulous, minute primary source research. And so that is part of this collection as well. And so this collection is chalk filled with his own uh, records, his interview notes, his outlines, his notebooks, manuscripts. Galleys in their early phases, galleys after he's, he's worked yeah. through them, but also many, many primary source documents that will help us tell fuller stories about the United States between the 1920s and up to the present
3: day. So before we talk more about the exhibition, perhaps you could describe it for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to visit
1: so the exhibition consists of approximately 93 documents and some objects that are largely from the Caro archive here at the Historical Society. There are a few objects that we've borrowed from Mr. Carrow and a couple of his associates, but very, very few. And we're displaying objects that give an overview of Mr. Caro's career and how he came to write these five books that have become known as very important histories of aspects of the United States. The exhibition is divided into five sections, and we begin by showing materials that illustrate some of the early work that he did before he, while he was in high school and in college even. Uh, then we show work related to his days at Newsday. He was a reporter before he started to work on the Power Broker book. Then we show materials from the Power Broker and, again, from the first uh, book on Lyndon Johnson. And then in our fourth section of the exhibition, which I think is, is very unique, we, we tried to illustrate Mr. Carroll's writing process Yeah, because he has a very tried-and-true process that he adheres to. And it's a painstaking process, but we've displayed um, different kinds of documents that illustrate the stages that he goes through in writing a book. Yeah. And then the last section, um, we show various types of memorabilia and photographs that, again, illustrate different aspects of um, the way that his books have impacted other people.
3: I was particularly taken by the fourth section the yes uh, you know his process i have read working so i knew what his process was but seeing you know the the way that he puts the red line through the the notes when he's processed them seeing the typewriter too weirdly it like it, yes. seeing these objects it does make a difference and i have to say even though i love objects that surprised me
1: well i think um one of the, the wonderful things about working on this exhibition is, and because we have the archive here now, we really had the material to illustrate the process with these documents, with these original mm-hmm. documents. And that's very, very unusual. And Mr. Caro, when you go to his office, and I think if you look at working, you see some pictures of his office in that book. Uh, you see that he has a corkboard that he uses. So when he does start to write, after he's done voluminous mm-hmm. research, he creates these outlines. And as he starts to write the manuscript, which he does initially by hand, um, he'll put a red line through the outlines to indicate that he has now moved into the next phase of writing that part of what will become a chapter yeah. and then a book. And so we were able to use those some of those documents in the exhibition and put them in cases so that people, visitors can actually walk up to the documents and really look at them.
3: Yeah. Yeah. There's also um, another really great uh, thing from in the power broker area, um, you know, which is a you know, biography of Robert Moses uh, and uh, Carol and his wife. Uh, went to a place so they could observe who, what kind of people, were they white people, were they people of color, were using a particular place. And you can actually see the marks that he made as he was counting people. You see and the again, tally
1: marks, yes. Yeah,
3: it's so powerful, even though, I, again, I knew that he'd done that. But- right,
1: right, and you can read the footnotes in in the Power Broker, but to have the kind of material that gives you more of the background story on how he came to put that on the page is really incredible. Yeah. Um, and one of the other great advantages that we had in this exhibition is that Mr. Caro made himself available to us. So we could go back and say, can you tell us more about the tally sheet? Mm-hmm. And so um, that doesn't happen very often.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, th- that's a, that's another thing I wanted to ask you about because um, I, it was only when I heard about this exhibit that I realized that, that uh, the New York Historical Society now Um, kind of had his archive because very famously he's still writing I mean he's in his 80s but he's still writing he's still still, writing he's still working on more you know more volumes
1: he's working on his last Lyndon Johnson volume
3: yeah so does he still access the materials does he pop in and, and kind of consult things
1: he has he has held back some materials and he's held back materials that he is using for the fifth volume got it So anything that we have is not something he's actively using right now in his writing process. Um, Yes, he he he's here. I would say he's here often. Um, He lives close by, (laughs) so it's very easy for him to walk here, actually. Mm -hmm. And it's been really an incredible opportunity to be able to spend time with him and have him give us some of the backstories behind every piece of paper that we could pull out of the uh, archive. Yeah.
3: So was he involved in the selection of items that are on exhibition? Well, yes and no. We did the
1: selecting and um, we put together a narrative, but we worked with him um, to ensure that our narrative made sense and... um, We also wanted to integrate some of these backstories into the exhibition explanatory text. And so he worked really, I would say he collaborated with us uh, very much so.
2: We'll be back with more of June's conversation with Deborah Schmidt-Bach after this. Listeners, we want to hear from you, whether it's to ask us for advice on a creative problem or tell us a guest you'd like to hear on the show or share your own creative triumphs, drop us a line at workingatslate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to June's conversation with Deborah
3: Schmidt-Bach. So I know we've kind of talked about this, but this must have been just such a tricky task because it's not like you had to pick 100 out of 300 items to spotlight. It was 100 or whatever number out of 100,000 or maybe more. Um, We don't know yet. Yeah, we don't even know. We'll know, but but not yet. (laughs) Yeah, but certainly a lot. Yes. Um, What was that winnowing process like? And and how did you know, like, okay, this will be something that people want to see? Obviously, that's part of your training, that's part of your art, but... So
1: this exhibition is not unusual for us, but it's unique in that we it was a collaboration between curators and the library. Hmm. So the Historical Society has two divisions with collections. One is the museum collection, and the museum collection includes art and objects, and the other is the library collection, which includes manuscripts, broadsides, prints, ephemera, photographs, architectural drawings, Mm. books. And so this is a collaboration between the two. So I, as a curator, collaborated with the curator of manuscripts in the library division, and the two of us worked together to figure out what would work Uh, As best for display. Mm -hmm. And so among the things that I think about when I'm looking for materials to help me propel an exhibition narrative is we wanted to find documents that were pretty immediately understandable, Mm. documents that someone could look at and not read in detail, but come away immediately with a sense that this is a document worth looking at further. And then the other thing that I think about is, is the overall document or object visually compelling? Because we really want, I always try to find objects and documents that will pull people over, that look, that have something about them that are unusual, that will kind of say to people, look at me. Yeah. And that's what we both thought about from both a library and museum orientation And we just had actually a really wonderful time using our different viewpoints to come up with um, pieces, objects, or documents that would fit those issues.
3: That's so interesting. You know, things that are documents are also very much objects in his case, very visual because of that red strike, you know, absolutely. through what could just be a notepad. And it is a notepad, but it's also something really visually striking. So absolutely.
1: And, and for me, each object is also a document or each document is also an object. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you look at a document with a lot of text, it's it may not become visually compelling. But if there's a big red line through the middle of it, that looks like something you might want to learn more about. Right. So, yeah, we really did try to pick documents that would grab people in some shape or form, even if they were just
3: walking by. And then there's one of his typewriters in there. And it's a typewriter. Could be my typewriter. Could be anybody's typewriter. But you want to see that typewriter because he very famously doesn't use a computer, he does his handwriting, then he types. It's perfect.
1: Yeah, and those typewriters aren't made anymore. So he has a collection of typewriters, actually. Mm -hmm. And he also has a part of that, the reason for that collection is because he needs to sometimes extract parts from other typewriters to fix the typewriter that he's using. And um, I believe he has 11 typewriters right now. And so that is one of his typewriters. And that is in the archive, too. That will stay in the collection.
3: So you just mentioned staying in the collection. Um, This is, I read, is now, this isn't like a rotating exhibition. This is a permanent exhibition that will be at the New York Historical Society. What does that mean? Most exhibitions that people visit tend to
1: be exhibitions that we we refer to as temporary exhibitions. So they're up for a finite number of months, generally, and then they go away, or then they travel to another city. Um, This exhibition was a bit more of a challenge than normal for permanent exhibitions because it's so much paper-based. Paper materials, when they're in an archive and they're being preserved, really should not be out um, meeting the light of day um, more than five months at the most. And when people come to the exhibition, we've had many comments that the light levels are very low. Yes, they are, because we can only use a certain amount of lighting and we measure lighting for every document Mm -hmm. um, to help preserve the, the documents. These documents are now library archive documents. So we want to preserve them in perpetuity, but at the same time we want to show them. So another challenge we had was how can we safely show them so that people can read them even in low light. And then they'll have to eventually go back and rest. And the documents we actually have documents and drawings too are in that category that the documents have to have a rest. (laughs) So, in terms of the, the exhibition will evolve and there will be times when the exhibition will change and part of it will be propelled by the need to have documents rest.
3: I shall be I shall be pondering the concept of resting documents for a while now. It's amazing. <laughs> um, so Gothamist, which had a really great piece about the exhibition, I think the weekend that it opened, um, they noted with, with great sadness that there were no... Caro refrigerator magnets or like power broker silk scarves. As a curator, do you think about that kind of ancillary product when you're putting together an exhibition?
1: Um, sometimes. It depends on what the topic of the exhibition is. And I think some exhibitions lend to things like refrigerator magnets more than others. We did not do a lot of talking about the commercial aspect of items that are not books, Mm -hmm. frankly, uh, for this exhibition, at least not yet. Yeah. And I think that because it's a permanent exhibition, we can continue to think about that. Also, remember, we put this together during the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it was a very different process because... Most
3: of us were not
1: working on site for much of the time that we put it together.
3: Um, Another thing that struck me, uh, and I realized when I came to the exhibition, that it was my first time at the New York Historical Society. I thought I'd been to all the museums in town, but it was my first time there. Um, But you do things on a slightly different scale. Um, You're not typically walking through rooms and rooms and rooms of material. I mean, there are rooms and rooms and rooms of material, but um, the exhibitions tend to be quite dense um, cases rather than rooms. Uh, Is that something that's part of a particular philosophy of the institution? Uh, What's that about?
1: Um, We are a history museum. And as a history museum and a history library, we are here to interpret American history and New York history for the public and our visitors. So our exhibitions fall very much in line with that idea. We are not an art exhibition. So, um, you know, I think a lot of art museums have an example of the best of X, Y, or Z thing. And we may or may not have that. Um, One of the other unique things about our collection, because we're not an art museum, is that many of the pieces at least in the museum collection, come to us with histories um, that are either histories of the person who owned the, the object or used the object or the object was given or represented an important historical event or some sort of historical figure. And so every object that we have in our collection has an aspect of history to tell. And that's the philosophy we use for everything that we do here. Um, The tagline that we use here a lot is objects tell stories. Mm. And that's absolutely true. Objects and documents can uniquely and individually give evidence of different aspects of history. But I want to also say, we also want our exhibitions to to be inviting. Mm. Because everyone who works here is excited about history and excited about the materials that we're... That we get to work with. I mean, to be able to work with to, and touch Robert Carroll's collection, for me, was a big thrill. I read yeah. um, the Power Broker when I was first in, when I was initially in graduate school. So to be able to look through these documents and be able to do it myself was such a, a was such an amazing treat. Yeah. So we try very hard to um, bring that that enthusiasm and excitement and awe. Um, and infuse our labels with that as well, because we everybody here loves what they do.
3: So who writes those labels? Was that you and the, and the, and the person from the, the library uh, side that you were collaborating with?
1: Yes, generally the curator writes the labels. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, the labels were largely written by um, my co-curator, uh, Edward O'Reilly, who's the manuscript curator in the library as well as Michael Ryan, who was the director of the library um, up until recently mm. when he retired.
3: Mm. I mean, the other thing that strikes me is as a curator, I imagine, you can correct me, that another kind of part of your job is to think, what could be a great exhibition? What could we use in this, uh, this gigantic collection? I imagine that's overwhelming. How do you overcome that sense of overwhelm of like, we've got all this stuff, what could we do? I mean, we're constantly coming up
1: with ideas. And I would say that most ideas never become an exhibition. Um, But we just constantly throw out ideas. And once we have an idea, we vet them. And those ideas get circulated. And uh, we do different amounts of research depending on the stage that the idea is in. Mm -hmm. And if an idea continues to go through the proper stages and Research, and then we have objects or documents to to use as ways to propel that narrative, then we have an exhibition in the making. The other thing that we try to do, and I think we're somewhat unique in, again, being a history museum and library and not an art museum, is that um, we try really to think about what's going on around us and to think about how our collection might help to propel information about what's going on in Mm -hmm. our own lives and in the lives of of others in the the United States.
3: Wow. And what's your biggest frustration as a curator?
1: Having lived through the pandemic and still creating exhibitions brought a whole other range of frustrations. So as someone who works with objects for a living and every day, I did not have access to the objects in the Historical Society collection for many, many, many months. Mm. And that's a very hard thing, um, a very difficult restriction if you're working with objects and writing and and talking about objects.
3: You know, not having access to your objects makes me think, you know, okay, there are the books in the let's just talk about the books that are in the library. I'm sure there are many very valuable, very rare books, but, you know, there may be some version of that content, but there's—is there a sort of portable or a copyable version of, you know, an object? Uh, are you always working with the actual thing? No. And, and okay.
1: No. Um. You know, we have databases with our objects. We have a public interface to our object database, and we were very quickly after um, the pandemic shutdowns, we were given, uh, every all the staff members on the museum side were given remote access to our internal database. Mm. So I use that database, I mean, I use that database whether I'm in the office or not, but there's something about seeing an actual three-dimensional object, and this is true of documents as well. Mm. There's something about seeing it in person that for me makes an enormous difference. So yesterday I was working on another project and writing about an object and I wanted to check a detail on the object. So I got up and went to look at the object. And that's not a detail that I would have seen in a photograph, even if it's a a great digital photograph.
3: I really recommend this Robert Caro uh, exhibition. But apart from that, is there one thing, like some say, okay, I want to get you excited about objects, about the historical society. Is there one object that you would say, so come over and check this out? Is there one thing that's going to get people mm. all, they're going to get them purring when they see it?
1: Well, one thing that we're about to put on display, and it's, it's already out, but the, the, the exhibition hasn't opened formally, is every year we have a collection of toys and miniatures that we call Holiday Express. It's a toy train and, and miniature collection. And we have some incredible objects that we're in the process of putting out right now, including a very, very large, 30-inch-high miniature Ferris wheel, and a Zeppelin, and different kinds of of turn-of-the-century amusements. So I think these are just magical, wonderful, incredibly detailed objects that actually have a lot of history to, to tell. Um, the toys were very much reflective of modern technologies from their day, largely from the, the late, eight, late 19th and early 20th century. So, um, you know, I think these wonderful, adorable objects, they're just beautiful, fascinating, fun to look at, but just filled with, with history behind them.
3: Wow.
5: Just go to Ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of IC Terms and conditions apply.
4: Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., Okay, so I know
2: that you start the interview by saying that you're not really that much of a museum person, which I found very funny. Um, And so I wanted to jump off that and ask what kind of museum person you are, or at least think you are. Um, How did you find out about the exhibit? Are you a slow gallery walker, a fast gallery walker? Do you read all the plaques? What do you like or dislike (laughs) about exhibits?
3: So just a clarification, I am a museum person but I do that weird thing that I think a lot of big city residents tend to do mm-hmm. where I hold off going to museums in the city <laughs> I live in because yeah. I know that visitors are going to want to go. Only we haven't had visitors in the last couple of years, so I really haven't much I really haven't spent much time in museums at home. Mm-hmm. Whereas when we go on vacation, even if it's just to Philly or DC, it's like all museums all the yeah. time. So that's a little strange. I am quite set in my ways. I'd like to begin in the museum shop, not only because I love museum shops and I want to still have all my energy when I'm walking around there, but also because they can tip you off to what you're going to enjoy. Like even in small museums, you oh. have to pick and choose, or at least I do, right? So, so that you know where to spend your energy. Yeah. If you just kind of, you know, check out what's in the store um, – You know, the catalogs or even postcards can, like, give you an indication of what it is you're really going to dig. We -hmm. were in Edinburgh recently, and in the shop of one museum, my partner and I both saw the catalog from an exhibition at another museum, and we knew immediately (laughs) that we were going to like it. And so, you know, we headed over there. And I don't think we would have if we hadn't seen that catalog. So, you know. Right. That's so fun,
2: because I feel like that's usually the opposite of how people approach museums and their gift shops.
3: Yeah, I, I love a gift shop. The other thing, too, <laughs> is my my partner is an artist and loves to buy very big, very heavy art books. And mm-hmm. there are very few places these days where you can actually look at books, especially mm-hmm. art books, because even if you're lucky enough to have a bookstore near you, the chains just don't have that many art books in stock. And so they're one of the few places you can really check out art books. Gotcha. As to my pace, I think I'm kind of medium speed. Uh, I scan, and if I'm not particularly grabbed by something, I won't linger. I don't feel obliged mm-hmm. to check something out. But when I see something that I really like, I like to stare. Uh, and. This exhibition, actually, I found about from a press release. I usually ignore press releases, Mm -hmm. but I wrote back like within seconds of getting it. (laughs) And I found out later that one of my Slate colleagues had also written to the written like the second after she got the the press release. And she doesn't even live in New York City. So I know that this is a topic that is just going to, you know, get a lot of people's uh, (laughs) antennae clicking, clicking, clicking.
2: Yeah, definitely. I, I love what you said about, like, if something doesn't really grab you when you're looking at it, you you don't really feel too bad about moving on from it. Because that's one of the things that you talk about in the interview, where the things that Schmidt-Bach is considering is not only the content of the note, but how it actually looks and if it'll grab somebody's attention. Um, mm-hmm. Do you feel like you've ever had to balance that sort of thing in your work, like figuring out maybe it's like header art for a post or something or a logo for a podcast or something like that?
3: So... I hate to admit this, but I'm just not a visual person. One of the few good things (laughs) about the end of the blogging era is not having to find my own art. I just don't care. (laughs) It's so much better when a designer is the person making me pick. Uh, There are certain things that I am so down to, you know, obsess over and really, like, get lost in. But Mm -hmm. art and headers, that's never going to be one of them.
2: That's fair. Wait, so what is, like, one of the things that you get really obsessive
3: over? (laughs) Oh, my God. Well, this again, this is not a good thing, but I think, I think because I was once a copy editor and I really think I'm like a good copy editor. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. I find it really impossible to do any piece of writing that has typos or imperfect grammar or like... You know, a comma where a semicolon should be. And that Mm -hmm. is really definitely not a good thing. The idea is just to get, you know, a lot of the time you just need to get a draft out. You just need to figure out what you want to say so that you can revise it. And I'm incapable of that. I I cannot, (laughs) like, I have to have the proper capitalization If, if it demands a semicolon. It needs a semicolon. Uh, and I have to check the spelling of people's names, even though I am 99% sure they're never going to make it to the next version. I'm incapable of moving on from that.
2: Honestly, I, I deeply respect that as someone who is also kind of obsessed with clean copy. Um, yeah. I. <laughs> and speaking of like your penchant for the museum gift shops, I, I also love the part <laughs> of your conversation where you were talking about how some people wanted like more or other kinds of rubber carol merch which is such like yeah. a niche thing and so funny um and i'm curious how much you think of that in your own work like do you ever think about merch opportunities
3: when you're producing a podcast or any of the other work that you do I do not, but you know what? I've just thought when as because this is going to be a permanent exhibition, so there's mm-hmm. still lots of time to get merch. They need to get some magnets because so much <laughs> of Caro's work is about power and, and influence. And uh. if they could have some, you know, some magnets, I think they'd be like, whoa, you know, it would blow people's minds. Um, <laughs> but to get to your question, um, I really don't. Again, it's partly that whole. Uh, you know, I'm not particularly a visual person. I don't really... Mm-hmm. Or, it's funny because I like to draw, but I don't... I just don't... It's, it's not how I think it, it... Like, I draw and that's separate from writing or thinking about yeah. projects. Um, but uh, I also think I resist it because I have such a thing for tchotchkes. I have a house full of crap, and I'm I'm just terrified of like anything that would cause me to not only spend money but just accumulate more stuff. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But I also think like I think it's actively bad to get lost in stuff like that. I mean, Mm -hmm. we talk a lot about things that we. It's really. Not productive to spend time on you know again we focused on this in a lot of episodes recently of like time is Mm -hmm. precious you have to decide what your every decision you make to spend time on something means you're not spending it on something else and uh, I was I was reading um, some advice on the writer Melinda Lowe's website recently as I was preparing to interview her and one of the big lessons, uh, she has a whole series of lessons from 10 years mm-hmm. in publishing. And one was don't spend unnecessary money on book promotion. Um, <laughs> you know, if you want to make merch, make merch. But don't imagine for a minute that it's going to make people view your work in a different mm-hmm. way. Like you're not going to yeah. get people to check out your book because you have amazing uh I don't know what, bookmarks. Uh, It's just not going to happen. So much better to spend your, your precious uh, brain cells thinking about something else.
2: Yeah. It makes me think of the recent publicity um, tour, I guess, of the new Sally Rooney book where so many like media influencers got the tote bag and we're showing it off. And I was like, this isn't for anyone who doesn't know who Sally Rooney is. Right. Where it's like, it's hype because they're Sally Rooney heads. Um.
3: Yeah, totally.
2: (laughs) So one of the other things that you talk about um, with Schmidt Bach is about talking about winnowing down resources to figure out what's going to go in the exhibit and what isn't. Which is, mm. uh, I've talked about this a little bit with Isaac, I think, but it's like it's a harrowing process for me. Where sometimes it's easy to decide what is or isn't relevant to the topic, but when you have a lot of stuff that you think is relevant, it's impossible I to know. kind of cut it down. How do you approach processes like that?
3: Oh, with so much trepidation and so much like, anxiety. <laughs> It really mm-hmm. is the worst that, you know, there's there's there are so many cliches about writing and editing. But one of the most colorful is killing your darlings or, right. as our former co-host Ramon Alam so memorably puts it, beheading your swans. Um, <laughs> oh, no. I know. Right. It's, qu- it's quite the image. Um, so that's one thing. And, you know, yeah, you have to do it. It's never pleasant. But there's mm-hmm. a stage before that, which I think is what you're talking about. Where, you know, Robert Carroll would say you have to turn every page. You have to look at right. everything. And it's overwhelming, first of all. But then you do have to make choices. Because, first of all, Robert Carroll, to, to get to do what he does in terms of, like, you know, making revisions to not only to galleys, but to almost finished copies. Like, only Robert <laughs> Caro gets to do that. You know, we yeah. the rest the rest of, of humanity doesn't. Um, we would get murdered if we tried to do that. <laughs> totally, fully murdered. Um, so I think for me, it boils down to the same thing of how I feel about what to spend my time on when I'm walking through a gallery. Like, yeah. I do try and do my due diligence. I try and make sure I haven't missed anything because of ignorance, and I... I that could just mean you know trying to know the field that you're writing about and um, kind of get a sense of it, but also yeah. asking questions like whose story isn't being told in mm-hmm. what I've gathered so far, kind of looking beyond my own perspective. But then you just have to make choices, right? I mean, it just comes down <laughs> to that, and yeah, that's true for. Me, For me, that's just about like, what is it that I'm excited about? Mm Because if I'm bored by it, I know for sure it's going to be boring for the people who read it. Uh, Yeah, right. If you like, at
2: this point, the number one enthusiast for X topic, find it boring, then definitely somebody else.
3: (laughs) Time to behead Um, that swan. Oh, no.
2: This is so off topic, but are you apprised of the um, saga of swans
3: getting stolen from Prospect Park? No, I I think I've I know, but you know <laughs> it's, it's especially troublesome because, you know, in Britain the Queen mm-hmm. owns the swans, so swans are oh, extra protected. Right. So you know, even though I've lived here for uh-huh. many years, forty years, I'm, <laughs> I'm a U.S. citizen, still I'm like, don't mess with swans, okay? Don't yeah. do it. So yeah, I generally I kinda, agree. I think I was I I was too triggered to read those stories. <laughs> That's my excuse. You're the funniest
2: person I know, but also <laughs> I deeply respect them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, to take a sort of step back, I guess, we talked a little bit about like being passionate about a topic. And one of the things that you talk about with mm. Debra schmidt is like coming up with a topic to begin with, or it's how do you decide yeah. what to build an exhibition around? Um, how do you personally approach finding a project topic?
3: Once again, totally about passion. Like, Mm -hmm. what am I going to be excited about over the long term? I mean, if it's for a 100-word piece, you just need a solid idea. But if it's something bigger, a long feature, and definitely for a book, has to be something that's going to sustain your interest. At some point, it's going to feel like a chore. So the longer you can Mm -hmm. postpone that feeling, the better. And one thing that I've done, like, there were times when I was pitching, like, you know, I could pitch any almost anything. Like, they were told to pitch ambitious things, which is really mm-hmm. the worst prompt. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would, like, <laughs> okay. Um, I would prompt, I don't know, I, what I would do is look at my bookshelves. Like, what have I spent money on? Not only spent oh, money on, but what have yeah. I kept? You know, because especially if you live in a city and you have a restricted space, you're always having right. to, like, weed out books to hold on to what you've you know, what you can squeeze into the space. So whatever there were a lot of, that was what I knew. Okay, that must be something I'm really into. Um, So that's just like a way that, what about you? What do you do?
2: Um, I'm pretty lucky, I think, in that of the big projects that I've been approached for, like the topic has kind of already been decided for me, Mm. like the book that I'm Mm. working on, for instance, like I was already sort of known for covering that topic. And so when they approached me, they were like, we're thinking about publishing a book on this. And we thought that you would be a good fit for the material, which was lovely, because I feel like I have had conversations with literary agents where they're like, yeah, like anything you want to write a book about, that'd be great. And yeah. I, I, every time I'm like, I have no idea where to start with this. Um, so exactly. maybe I'll have a better answer further down the line. But like even with scripts and stuff, it's usually, it helps that I work with a writing partner so that we can bounce ideas off each other. And it's not just me working in a vacuum.
3: Ooh, um, yeah.
2: So that's helpful. So as I mentioned at the top of the show, I feel like probably not everybody who is listening would know who Robert Caro is. So in, mm. and in that sense, he's definitely more known to journalists and writers and the kind of media sphere. And mm. for when you're coming up with a topic, is there ever a worry that it might be too niche or not, um, I guess, popularly known enough? Or is slash like, is there something you do to kind of counteract that?
3: I mean, that's really tricky, right? Because you don't want to be the 30th person to write about Topic X, whatever it is. Um, Yeah. Even the most popular thing on the internet, the most popular thing, um, you know, the New York Times, for example, there's maybe five things that they will never stop writing stories about (laughs) because apparently they will always be read. But when it comes to writing them, when you're devoting your time, your precious brain space, you want to be sure that, like, there's a point to it, right? So mm-hmm. at the same time, if it's, you know, just you, if it's just you, then it's really, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, by all means write it, but in your journal, you know? So <laughs> how, do, how do you find that that medium that there's, yeah. listen, this is going to blow your mind because you don't know about this, but this is really fascinating. And mm-hmm. so you have to make it really fascinating, no pressure. But um, <laughs> the, the other thing too, though, is, I have always hated that particular approach of like, you don't know about this. Like, anything that begins yeah. with, you know, stories you don't know about why, like, I was, it just makes me want to go, well, actually, I know all about that. Who are <laughs> you calling ignorant? Like, that just yeah. sets me on edge. Right. So, you don't want to kind of. No, I don't want to kind of put it that way, but I do want to, like, it's maybe more of a challenge to like, I don't know why people haven't heard about this because it's crazy interesting, but let Mm -hmm. me tell you about it, you know. So that that I think is the sweet spot.
2: Yeah, definitely a really hard spot to hit, though.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Totally. No kidding.
2: Um, and to circle back to process a little bit, I really found Mm -hmm. the discussion that you have on, or talking about Robert Kara's process where he was just like, just write it as opposed Mm. to trying to write something perfect the first time, which I, we've talked about a little bit in our conversation so far. Um, I'm definitely someone who has a very hard time following that kind of advice where I'm like, I want it to always be good. I never want it to be in a bad (laughs) position. Um, (laughs) <laughs> okay I was gonna ask is that part of your process as well it sounds like you were in my boat <laughs> it's like you cannot totally. work that way
3: but I but also I mean th- again it's so hard because you know that you just have to get it out everybody yeah. knows that everybody knows it's all about revision this this is like that's the most basic fact of writing and yet yeah. I also struggle because I think I think that my worst flaw as a writer and maybe even as an editor is that I settle too quickly. Now, mm. I, I also don't know if that's true or if that's just my vision of myself if it's just like basically mm. self-hating, you know. But so I'm always <laughs> I'm always like fighting against it, but I you know, you just have to admit that perfection is impossible. So mm. you have to fight the urge to seek it. You, You know, it's it's great for Robert Caro and his process has created some amazing books. But I don't think that anyone else should use that same process. Do not do that.
2: It feels like the kind of thing where for us lesser folk, it would eventually just drive you kind of (laughs) mad, like when you're when you say the same word too many times and you're like, oh, that's not a word anymore, is it? It yeah. seems like yeah. that's no, exactly. where you'd
3: end up. And I, you know, maybe maybe because we do know more writers, but I know several people who, you know, they had a big project. They, they were so in love with their idea. They sold a book and then they got lost in it and
4: it oh. kind of breaks
3: them. And you, and it's because they, you know, they didn't settle. And I can't argue with that. You, your book should be the best it can be, but mm-hmm. don't let it break you.
2: Have you ever experienced that or do you feel like you have kind of a healthy enough relationship with your work that you haven't hit that kind of a wall yet?
3: I I I think because I'm so aware of it, I think like, mm. you know, I just said I know several people. I probably know two people, but like it looms very large. So I think yeah. it's it's like uh, it's like um, you know, imagining your house burning down so that you <laughs> never leave the gas on. I mean, like that's extreme, yeah. but like sometimes yeah. it's what you got to do to you know, to just remember some basic lessons. Mm -hmm. I definitely agree with that.
2: (laughs) That is our show for this week. And if you enjoyed it, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and then you will never miss an episode and now let me tell you how awesome a slate plus membership is slate plus members get benefits like zero ads on any slate podcast full access to all the articles on slate.com bonus episodes of shows like slow burn and how to do it and it's only one dollar for the first month
3: Thanks to this week's guest, Deborah Schmidt-Bach, and thanks as ever to our wonderful producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with a very special holiday episode. Until then, get back to work.
5: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring